Well, good morning. I hope everyone is, is doing well on the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving. We're in chapter 8 of, of Ezra, and just as a, just a real quick, um, well, basically what we've talked about in chapter 7 is where Ezra came in to the scene, right? And Ezra is pretty much the main character for the rest of the book of Ezra. And uh, he's going to, we're going to, as they get back to the land, we're going to see more about him there. But chapter 7 was sort of an overview of, of what we are kind of going through right now in, in chapter 8. So, so it's, it's kind of a summary of what we've been seeing. Last week, we saw that there was a list of, of all of these families that were going to be joining in the exile, or the returning exile, back to the land uh, and, and so we went through all of, all of that, and we get down to all the names and the numbers now in, in, in chapter 8, and dealing with all the issues that come with taking a group of this size, around 1,500 men, 12 families, two priestly families, and one line of the, of the Davidic line, a total of about 5,000 men and women, uh, and also bonus points if you can remember the the name of the one who was in the, the, the line of the Davidic king. So if you know it, you can tell. Good job. There you go. There's one right there. So bonus points if you knew who that, who that was this morning with me, not with, with the Lord. Um, and, and ultimately how this king, this figure, who was just no, a nobody really to us, named there as God is continuing uh, his promise to his people and that one day out of even from him, a king would, would, be, would be born. Out of darkness would come light, Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we look at verses 15 through 20, I've titled this sermon, Where Are My Levites At? Where are my Levites? And the question, this is probably the question that Ezra asks when he gathers everybody together. And we'll see that in just a minute as we read, that they're missing the Levites. Where are they at? And it's a big problem that they face. They're all ready to go, and still a whole group is missing from them. And as we see from this passage, according to Ezra, that this is a very necessary group of people to go with them. Let's look at chapter 8. We'll read together, starting in verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Mushalam, leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Kasphia, telling them, to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God and by the good hand of our God on us. They brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah and his sons and kinsmen, also Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah and sons of Moriah, Merari, sorry, with his kinsmen and their sons, besides 220 temple servants 
whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. If, if we as a family are planning or preparing to go on a trip, which we are, we're planning to go see our family for, for Thanksgiving, and if it's, a, if it's a camping trip or even other trips, I, I, I like to have a list of, of what we need to bring and, and also the things that we don't need to bring. And, and I have this list on my, my phone, on the Reminders app, and I set that list according to what we need for that trip. So about a week before we leave, so last week I, I opened the app and I went on the thing and it says show completed items and I show all completed and I start unchecking all the things that, I'm th that I think we're going to need for that particular time uh, away. And as the week goes on and as we're, we get closer and closer, I'm able to check off those boxes until the very last box is checked uh, on, on like the moment we're pulling out of the driveway. Right? And there's this very self-gratifying moment. No one else in the car understands it, but it's a very self-gratifying moment. When I check that last box, you can call me weird, and I know it's some, uh, in some way it's, it's one of these weird quirks uh, about me, and, and it can be good at times, but it also has its disadvantages. But it really helps uh, in, in getting my army, called the Roberts family, anywhere, right? Because it's just inevitable that if we're not thinking or planning ahead, we're going to be in, in trouble. But however my plan may be, my strategy of putting everything in its place and all the, the lists that I, I go throughout the week, it's proof that my list is never complete. Because when we are pulling out that driveway, I'm checking that last box, we get about 300 yards away from the house, Still a point where I cannot turn around with a trailer. My wife says, I forgot this, or I forgot that, or we forgot this. And sometimes small things we can stop, put in park, put the hazard lights, and she'll run back to the house and, and grab it, you know, whatever it may be. But, but there's other times that we might forget stuff. We have to go back and get it. So oftentimes it's my wife's phone, uh, and sometimes it's even our, our spending money, cash that we'd save up for, for trips. Um, sunglasses all the time. Uh, our last trip that we went on, both of us forgot our, our eyeglasses, so all we had was our contacts, and hoping that we would not lose one contact, either one of us, or we would be in big trouble. Uh, uh, but, but once again, it, it doesn't matter. No matter what I do, my, even my fail-proof plan continually fails. In fact, it's kind of a game now, like what, is it gonna, what are we going to be missing uh, when we get there. What are we going to do? And I can imagine that Ezra, the numbers guy and the list guy that he seems to be, which is one of the reasons why I tend to, to like him, that when he sees this missing group, there's a little bit of uneasiness. We better not continue until we have the Levites. We, they haven't joined us. We, we need the, the, the Levites. Now, one thing I have to say that up to this point, 
unlike Ezra, we have not left any of our kids. We've always had every one of our kids. So where are my Levites at? This was going to be a one-way trip for this returning exile. Exiles. Exilees. All the farewells, all the goodbyes were said. Everything had been decided on what they were going to bring and what they weren't going to bring. I can imagine the conversations that they were having, convincing loved ones that you really don't need that. Do we really need to haul this couch or this thing, you know, a thousand miles, a four-month journey? Do we really need that? All those things had been decided. All those hard decisions had been made. The rallying point had been chosen right there at the river that runs to Ahava, and, and most likely this was one of the canals that they had several in Babylonia that ran off the Euphrates River, uh, which then they can go to the Euphrates and follow the Euphrates most of the way back into Israel. And so for this kind of journey, with this amount of people, it's an, an amazing feat of, of leadership and logistics by Ezra to gather everyone there, get all the right counting and everything that needs to be organized and made done. This was a four-month journey. Never been on a four-month journey. I used to think eight hours was a long journey. Four months would be a long time. But it was Ezra's responsibility to make sure everything was accounted for and everyone was going to be accounted for, not just for the journey itself, but also for when they get there to Israel, when they get back. What might have seemed to be boring or a waste of time or, or people impatient and eager and, and waiting to, to leave Ezra is pulling back and giving this three-day window to make sure everything is taken care of. But with all the inventory he notices the one thing that's missing. It wasn't money. It wasn't food or water. It wasn't enough carts for the, or for, for the carry things or enough animals to pull the carts. It wasn't tents or supplies. It wasn't anything like that. But rather to Ezra, the one thing that could stop the whole train is we don't have any Levites with us. Now, we may not yet understand their importance, and I hope maybe that after this morning you might understand the importance of the Levites, but to Ezra, to have the Levites go back with them was vital to their mission, to the mission of why they were going back to the land in the first place. They had priests, they had the kingly line, but they still needed some Levites. This was a problem. When the call went out, why didn't any of the Levites come? Why did they not have a desire to go? Now, to us, when we think about the, the Levites, we tend to think about the Levites of the New Testament, right? And we, we think about the, the Levites, this one of the particular groups that opposed Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus uses the Levites as an illustration of unfaithfulness in his parable of the Good Samaritan. It was a priest and a Levite that passed on the other side by the Samaritan who was left on the road dying. The Levites also had a pretty troubled past. They had a pretty troubled past, but they still were a vital part to the life and ministry and worship of Israel, which is why Ezra knew they could not leave 
without them. They couldn't go without them. They needed them for the worship in the temple as they were bringing about restoration of the worship, right? Biblical worship in the temple, reformation of worship in the temple. They needed the Levites to fulfill the role that God had called them to do. And he wasn't going to rely on the fact that there were maybe Levites even still in the land. Chapter 2, we knew that there was a group of Levites that did go. So 341 of them total out of 42,000. 341 Levites did go. So why, who are the Levites? Why are they so important? The Levites were from the tribe of Levi, the third-born son of Jacob. And Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The descendants of Kohath became the priestly line of Aaron, right? The priestly line of, of Aaron. And Aaron had, had four sons, two of them offered strange fire to God. They were disobedient and arrogant, and God killed them in their place. And so the other two sons of Aaron carried on the priestly line, Eleazar and Ithamar. We talked about them last week as they are, that line is part of this, this returning, uh, returning group. So then all the other then, the other descendants of Levi from the other sons, these are called Levites. So are Levites, are priests Levites? Yes, they are, because they are descendants of Levi, but not all Levites are priests, okay? So understand that, because they're descending from these other, these other sons of Levi. But God called this whole tribe the whole tribe of Levites to be separate, to be distinct from all other tribes. In fact, their inheritance was not a track of land when they got to the promised land, but their inheritance was the Lord himself, as they would have the privilege to serve God in his temple and in his tabernacle, or in tabernacle, then his temple. The troubled past, the unfortunate troubled past of the Levites really wasn't very far past the establishing of who the Levites were, were going to be. Back in Numbers 16, when Korah, the son of Koath, so one generation later, the son of Koath, Korah, the son of Koath, a son of Levi, he rebelled against Moses and Aaron. He was seriously questioning the authority of Moses and Aaron. And so there was this large group of people that were going to rebel against their authority. And God wasn't having it. He opened up the ground underneath Kohath and, and, and our, uh, Korah, excuse me, and, and the rest of those who were rebelling and swallowed them up, all of their household and everything they owned. Number 16. And this may come as a, a shocker. That's such a group set apart by the Lord, like the Levites were, that the tribe of Levi was. But the, the Bible is full of stories of people who God has called into relationship with him, who only end up rebelling against God. Adam and Eve, even Moses himself, Aaron, and Miriam, the whole nation of Israel over and over and over. You know, what's remarkable about this when it comes to the, the Levites and even their own failures and our own failures, what's remarkable is not how people fail God, which is still stunning in itself because sin should since be stunning and shocking, 
But what is so remarkable is the overwhelming mercy that God shows to his people over and over and over again. And when they turn from their sin and when they repent of their sin, he gives us grace and forgiveness. The Levites are what? A reminder. Their failures are a reminder of our own failures. Our own failures that we must look at, that we must consider, that we must uh, deal with. Because the reason that any one of us is right with God is not, be, not, uh, is not because we have never failed him. It is because of Jesus, the servant of God, who had never failed him. We fail. We're failures. We've rebelled over and over like Korah. But he is rich in his mercy and rich in his grace and forgiveness. Whatever their past may have been, the the Levites, though, they were in charge. They had a very important job when it comes to the worship in Israel. And that is, namely, to to be the, the ministering people around the priests. They were the next line out from the priest, which means they had about four main duties, four main tasks. First, they were charged with keeping watch over the tabernacle and the temple. Their job was to, to bring about the, the policing of the temple, the guarding of the, of, the, of the gates and keeping everything in the sanctuary clean and bright. The priests, they took care of the, the inner courts and the inner parts of the temple. They, they were doing all that. But just outside of that was the role of the, the, the Levites to clean and guard everything else. So think about that for a moment, how hard of a job that would be in a temple where Thousands of people would visit weekly and daily and and even yearly. And what did they bring with them? Animals. They brought animals. They brought cows and bulls and goats and birds, doves. They brought grain. And all of that does what? Makes messes. And not to mention the job of sacrificing and the mess that comes after that. The burning of the sacrifices, the cleaning of the, the ash, and the preparation of the, of the wood. These Levites had an extremely important job when it comes to the upkeep of the, of the temple, as well as a non-stop cleaning of the temple over and over again. I heard a great illustration when it uh, comes to trying to uh, clean around your house with kids around. It's like trying to brush your teeth with Oreos. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... You get nowhere, right? You get, you, you get nowhere. And I can imagine, like, they come in and they're like, oh, not again. You know, like, man, come on. Pooper scoopers aren't that expensive. So cleaning, policing of the temple. Number two, second, they would assist in all the sacrifices. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, how the Levites would assist in the, the Passover Right? And, and, and the, the amount of sacrificing that they had to do for hours and hours on end, sacrificing every one of those lambs for every single family in Israel. It was a huge, bloody role that they had in celebrating these different festivals and every sacrifice and every offering that was to be made daily and weekly and yearly. The priests and Levites worked together, and they were always on duty. And now they would rotate their shifts, and they would have each. They would be a week on and a week off, and the Sabbath was the day that they that they would uh, that they would rotate, or at least that's when they knew when they were coming on uh, rotation for when those particular uh, when the, when it was particularly their job or their time to 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 come on. 
And, and these duties, though, think about these duties and these, these sacrifices. This is something that this generation of Levites have never done before. They've, they've never done it before. They've never really seen it done. In theory, studying the scriptures, they've heard it. They know we're supposed to do it. But we've never seen it done before. Never have done it. And yet for a reformation of worship within the temple, they needed Levites for this job. The priests could not handle such a burden on their own. God gave Levites for that very purpose. Third, the Levites also functioned in the, in the temple music. They were the, the worship leaders of, of, the, of Israel. And lastly, this is a role that it seems to be something that they uh, more or less took on during the, uh, during the exile, uh, and I think maybe out of necessity, and that is the, the role of teaching. They took on a role of, of, of teaching the scriptures because the people needed good, sound instruction of the word of God when exiled, when removed from the sacrificial system and the feast. The, the, the Levites took on that role. But what all this tells us about the Levites is that their role, their job in the temple was very lowly. It was very servant-like. It was very messy. It was very dirty. And I'm speculating here, but I bet life in Babylon probably sounded a lot cleaner than it did in Israel. Less daunting. Less responsible. You see, the, the Levites were important because they were God-ordained servants, ministers to God's people. He called them out to be those servants, to be those ministers. And they were necessary for the work at the temple, for the sacrifices, for the offerings, for the festivals, for the atonement, whatever it may be. And so they showed their us, they show us in their role as servants, a type of who Christ is. Christ was a servant. And as Christ has served us, what has he done? He has now enabled us the right to do what? To worship God. The Levites did all, all the work. They laid everything out for what? So the people could worship. And the Le and, and Levites did that for them as Christ has enabled the right worship to God for us. So to not have the Levites was a big problem. This situation would be like trying to put a football team on the field to play a game and realizing that none of the offensive line has showed up to play. Good luck, quarterback. Running back, you're toast. But here's the point for us. Without Levites, there's no worship. There's no Israel. There's no identity. One of the unfortunate realities that in, in particular circles of, I think, some pastors and such, a sad joke of the church has been that is the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule in the church is that 80% of the work, finances, participation in the church is done only by 20% of its members. Did you hear me? 80% of the work, finances, participation in the church is only done by 20% of its members. Shortage in ministry and for ministers and servants is not a unique phenomenon of the post-exilic period. This is truly, for many congregations, a very sad reality that can oftentimes leave churches stagnant, tasteless, joyless, 
And often that 20% carries that, the burden of 100%, which then leaves them burnt out spiritually, mentally, and physically. Now, the 80-20 rule has, has come about for many reasons, and we can talk about those later, and we can speculate, speculate on, on all those things if you, if you want to, but the reality of church is that it doesn't run on its own. It doesn't just happen. There are needs, and there are logistics. For example, chairs don't get set up themselves. Floors don't magically clean themselves, or bathrooms get cleaned or restocked. Bills don't get paid on their own. Bible studies in small groups don't lead themselves. Music isn't organized on its own. And so many other things that we can add to the list. It takes Levites. It takes servants. It takes ministers. Thankfully, as a congregation, I don't believe as your pastor that the 80-20 rule has applied to us. And the result of that has been joy, has been longevity, has been no burnout, has been the freeing up of the elders to keep to the primary task of the, the office at hand. One of, the, one of the things that has been such a great joy to me is everything, every need, every task is, that gets done is not done by two, three, or even four people, but it gets done by most of the congregation. Yet still we must be careful. The, the, the work of the Levites was far less glamorous than of the priests, far less being in the limelight. But no matter what the task may be, if God is calling us to do it, then we must engage in it with all of our hearts and all of our minds. Think of all the times in the New Testament where, where as a church, the, whereas the church is called into the service of the Lord. And all the thousands of various ways that service then looks like. I mean, we could be here forever talking about all the different ways. But there is a clear, inseparable link between serving the Lord and serving the church. They go hand in hand. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Romans 12, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Ephesians 5, 21 says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what is a tangible way we submit to one another? By serving one another. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. The gospel gives us freedom, but to do what? To neglect the hard things, to not get our hands dirty in the work of the ministry and whatever the, the ways that it may be, the serving of one another, no matter how menial the tasks may be, to waste our freedom away on ourselves, to love ourselves, or is it to love and serve on one another? Well, Galatians 5.13 is much clearer than I am. And where does that happen? Where does that love, where does that serving happen? It happens namely in the church. Again, do not despise the small. Get in there. 
get dirty, serve one another. Because do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? You may not be in the physical lineage of the Levites, but according to the Bible, Jesus says that his followers are a kingdom of priests. And we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And we are being made into the image and the likeness of God. And we are being conformed to the one who is in the image of the invisible God, Christ Jesus. So are you embracing your role in the kingdom of God to be a priest, a Levite, a minister, a servant, as Christ was our servant? And he did not come to be served, but to give himself as a ransom for many. And you have been saved in order to love and to serve others. To be a follower of Christ, a Christian, means that we are all servants of one another, as Christ served us. Servants of the gospel, giving grace, giving mercy, giving forgiveness to one another, loving one another, bearing with one another, and sacrificial acts of kindness to one another. The problem where my Levites has revealed the necessity of servants and ministers. And so when there's a problem, you need a solution. And Ezra gives us a solution, a strategy, a proposal to get some Levites. Look back at verse 16. Verse 16, Ezra comes up with a list of 11 men. It's a pretty good group. Of 11 men. Some are described as leading men. These are leaders, right? Men of, men of influence. Men who exhibited leadership. And then there are two other men who are described as men of insight. And this, this means that these men were men of insight to the scriptures, I believe. Just like men like Ezra. So he sends men with influence and men who had insights to the scriptures. So which means that these also understood the importance of the Levites joining them. So how would Ezra convince a group of Levites to leave the relative is ease and comfort of where they were to go back with them to become servants of a messy, bloody, and dirty liturgy? To send a delegation to show them their moral obligation and more importantly, their biblical obligation to fulfill the role that God had intended for them. However, what do we also see? We see also that in the end, they were not forced to comply. Because willing servants make the best servants in any sphere. Whether it be in the temple, administration, or even at home. We will send these men, and if they are logical, teachable, and humble, we will point out their obligation and their responsibility to follow their brothers as Jews, but also to follow the Lord. In verse 17, Ezra tells them, that, tells them exactly who to speak to. Who, who do you go to? You go to Ido. And where to go? You go to the place Kesaphia. Somehow, some way, this was the place where the Levites were gathered. 
right? Uh, birds of a feather flock together. So here's the, the Levites. They're all, they're all together. And the, the leading man being, being Ido in some form or fashion. Uh, some think that there was possibly a school for Levites there were being instructed. Some think that this is where the, uh, the synagogues had started, was in kind of this idea with the, uh, the Levites doing this. But go there and to speak to them and tell them this and convince them through logic and through the scriptures of their obligation to, go, to come and to go and to send some temple servants. So Ezra sends these men to the right man in the right, to the right place to what? To put a holy pressure on them, to convince them to come do something that they have never done before but have only practiced in theory. To come put something in the practice you've never done before, but only practiced in theory. To convince them through sound biblical logic and moral arguments that this is what is good, that this is what is right, and this is what is necessary for them, even though you can't see it. Even though you're completely blind to it, even though you don't believe or think that this is what is good for you. Then the question, I think, for us must be, when we receive sound biblical logic and moral arguments from the Scripture, when it comes our way is when we read the Scripture daily or when we study it, when it's taught to us, when it's preached to us, before us, do we submit to it? Do we have the humility to hear the correction, the redirection, the, the reformation from God's Word? When the scripture does its work to cut us deep and exposing of sin, rebellion, neglect in areas of our hearts and life and relationships, are we quick to repent? Because God's word has spoken and corrected. Repent from those sins and then to turn to be obedient to the Lord. And sometimes it's often godly men and women who bring the word to us. To correct us. There's a twofold approach here, a twofold, very biblical approach of how the Lord calls each and every one of us to faithfulness. Faithfulness to be a servant, a faithfulness to be a minister of the gospel. That when we stray, that when we neglect, when we abdicate our role, it is His Word and His church. And so we pray this that the Lord. Would have it, the word would have its full effect and that we would hear the message from the messenger of the word. And lastly, in the last verses 18 and 20, we see the provision for them. The problem had been solved. There's some Levites that are convinced to, to go, to go with them. Uh, and, and they're described as, one of them is described as a man of discretion. A man of discretion. Which means a man who is wise. A man who is capable and, and, and understood all that would be required of the task. So, so when convinced, this man of discretion did what? Listened. Listened. Three major Levitical families joined, meaning a total of 38 joined with them. Along with them was 220 uh, temple servants that 
that basically they serve helping the, the Levites in their work. So a total of 258 more people were convinced to go, which is a lot more than they had before because it was zero. They heard something like, come follow us, and you may see hardship, you may see trouble, your hands might get really dirty, and there's no guarantee. Life could get way harder for you, but are you going to join us? You should. It's what God has made you for. So sort of along the lines, brothers and sisters, of what we hear, I think daily from our Savior in Luke 9, 23, Take up your cross and follow me. As 2 Timothy 2.3 says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The life that we have been called to is not a life of guarantee, safety, comfort, or fame, but it is to a life of faithfulness, service to the gospel, and service to one another. Lived out through the gospel in a time and place that God has for us. And as the Levites, we were made for this. They heard the call, and they responded. And yet, however, there is something more, I think, that, that really glares out. And you're like, hey, didn't you miss the first part of verse 18? And that's what we're going to talk about. Ezra, once again, gives thanks to God for the provision of the Levites. He attributes the, the Levites' favorable answer and their favorable commitment and the quality that God had given them, not to Ido, but to the Lord, by the good hand of our God on us. He knew the Lord would meet this pressing need, but that didn't stop Ezra from putting forth the effort to get the job done. He didn't just sit back and wait for the Levites to fall in his lap. That's not what that meant. It's not a let go, let God mentality. It's not wasn't his mentality, and I don't think that should be ours as well. We work knowing that it is God who works through us. We don't see Ezra freaking out or losing it, abandoning hope because of the crucial piece of the puzzle that was still missing, but rather he did what? He displayed faith in God, and still acted. So also in securing the, the Levites for the journey and for the work to come out of, come in uh, Jerusalem, Ezra understood and sees the evidence once again that God is showing his steadfast love for his people and proving over and over again of his faithfulness. This has been just an ongoing theme throughout Ezra, is the faithfulness of God for his people. And Ezra's forthright response is the, re, is the evidence of these things. His gratitude, the glory to God, is the proof. It's like from James 1, 16, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What we see in Ezra is what is a biblical response to everything. Praise the Lord. To God be the glory. Is that your posture? 
even in the service of the dirty? Is that, is that our posture? Is it to God be the glory? Praise the Lord. It's by His mighty hand we have seen these things. When the Lord provides for His people, His servants, safety, provision, mercy, salvation, blessing, f- fellowship, it is namely because of the Lord's hand. Everything He has made, everything He has created, is, everything that He has given us is meant to be enjoyed by us and then rolled up for His glory. One of the things that I... I think we've missed, I think, in our society, and I think maybe a few of y'all know this, but this Thanksgiving marks the 400th year of the landing of the pilgrims in Massachusetts. 400 years! I mean, 1620! God brought these, these people here, led them here to, to be, what? To be free religious in their religion through Christianity, a very gospel-centered, Christ-centered Gospel, they were being persecuted. They, found, they, they went through hardship. I mean, insane hardship that we, we couldn't fathom in our cushy, feathery lives. And yet, what did they do? They give thanks. 400 years ago. That's amazing. Let's not forget our history. People that we, well, some of us literally descend from, but biblically and orthodox-wise, we descend from. Everything about us, our entire posture, should be the mighty hand of God has given us this. We all have so much to be thankful for. So much. And we all must be ready to recognize the hand of God and his provision for us. Yet let us remember that each of us has been called into this work of the kingdom. From the smallest part to the biggest part. However, let us also remember the one who before us came as our servant and served us. The pattern of service that we do for one another patterns the work, the, the patterns the service of our Savior. We're, we don't necessarily die on the cross for one another, but we do take up our cross and we die to ourselves and we follow him in the service of others. I love what the scriptures teaches us about one of the greatest servants to the church besides Jesus himself. The apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15:10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, I, but the grace of God that was in me. Continue to press in, brothers and sisters. Continue to strive. Continue to work. Continue to serve one another. Continue the work and the fruit by which the Holy Spirit has been guiding you and leading you for. But I want you to experience the joy of knowing that through your work, through your service to one another, through your love for one another, that it was not just you, but by the grace of God, by the mighty hand of God, of God. Doesn't that give you joy? That gives me joy. Doesn't that give you joy to see other brothers and sisters here before you serving you? Doesn't it give you joy to see others who who stay after 
who are serving you. Doesn't it give you joy knowing that people are doing things and serving in ways that you'll never know and that they are being done to the glory of God? God answers his prayers, or our prayers. God answers the needs of his church by the hands of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this morning. Lord, thank you for the encouragement. I think the building up of one another that we, it kind of builds us up in our service that we've been committed to and others have been committed to. And let us be encouraged in, in, in that, knowing that it is you, O oh God, who has been working in us. And let that be the, the fuel that, 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 that burns, that combusts in our heart when, when it just seems hard or it seems monotonous or it seems unappreciated, whatever it may be, oh God, that we would see the driving force that it's not for us, but it is for you and done by you to the glory of your name. And Lord, also the encouragement to that maybe there's other things for us to jump into and be a part of, to serve one another, and the, the things that may come up over time to be that person to love and serve one another. God, would you give us the grace? Would you give us the, the ears to be able to hear the Holy Spirit move us in such a way? God, I'm, I'm grateful for the work of the gospel, that all that we do, it patterns our Savior. Lord, we are far from being anywhere near perfect, but let us continue to strive to be more and more like our Savior, and in our service, may it pattern the come to to die of ourselves and take up our cross and follow you daily. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you the praise and the glory for all the work that you have done in us. And we thank you for your mighty hand that has been in our midst and continues to lead us and guide us in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.